If you're black in America, you have higher odds of having a food allergy and lower odds of having the support and resources you need. In Allergic Living's Talking Food Allergy podcast, we're launching a series speaking with leading advocates about the realities of managing food allergies for black families from bias in medical care to food insecurity, school preparedness, and more. Our guest today is Emily Brown. Emily is the founder and CEO of Food Equality Initiative, a nonprofit with a mission to improve health and end hunger in individuals who must eliminate common foods from their diet to maintain their health. Emily works to eliminate health disparities with patient-led approaches. Emily recently wrote an open letter to the food allergy community citing bias and racial disparities. Emily joins me today to talk about her personal experience as a food allergy mom, nonprofit CEO, and advocate. Emily Brown, it is so wonderful to have you here today on our Talking Food Allergy podcast. We want to talk about some very important issues. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here today. You recently wrote a powerful letter to the food allergy advocacy community. And in it, you spoke of the need to listen to and prioritize needs of African-American families. This would certainly include the medical experiences by families with food allergies. Emily, what is your take on the role of race in the diagnosis and treatment of food allergy? Race certainly plays a role in the diagnosis and treatment of food allergy. It's been well-documented challenges of implicit bias and how that affects the doctor-patient role. There's also real issues when it comes to access to care. I can give you one example from my own personal experience of being an African-American mother who recently experienced what it's like to manage food allergy on Medicaid. When my husband lost his job in 2015, we lost all of our care providers. None of them accepted Medicaid. So all of a sudden, we had to find an allergist that would accept Medicaid, and it was nearly impossible. And what I discovered was that only one clinic in our community accepted Medicaid, and that was at the Children's Hospital, the academic institution in our community. And what I know is that that experience is not unique. That is the experience that many families of color, many families who economically disadvantaged experience, just the difficulty of access to care. It took six months for us to get in to an allergist when we transferred our care due to Medicaid. And then there's a whole nother set of individuals who don't have access to Medicaid, who are undocumented or immigrants that have recently arrived, and they can only find care at federally qualified health centers. If you can't get an accurate diagnosis, your options for treatment are even more limited, and your ability to maintain and manage your condition is limited, and that has a significant impact on your quality of life. What changes do you think would make a difference to the disparity that you're describing? Access to insurance coverage is critical. As a community, we have to continually advocate that health insurance is a right and that it is an affordable option available to everyone. We really have to do some work with 
making sure primary care physicians they're on the front lines of the diagnosis gap, understand food allergy, they understand the symptoms, and that they're looking for this in patients of color, that they know to ask the right questions, that they step away from the bias that food allergy is primarily an affluent and white condition. If we can overcome some of those biases, we'll see more diagnosis. You started the Food Equality Initiative to help families who are food insecure, many of whom utilize food banks, to have access to food allergy-friendly options. Could you explain a little bit about what food insecurity is? And could you also talk about how the mainstream food banking infrastructure fails the food allergy community? So food insecurity is a term that is generally defined as a lack of access to adequate food that will allow you to grow, nourish, and thrive. Food insecurity is also transient, meaning you may experience food insecurity today, but it doesn't mean that you're always going to be in a state of, of food insecurity. Recently with COVID-19, so many families have experienced either a job loss or reduction in hours. And so now they're facing some form of food insecurity and their situation may change. They may get a new job and then they may find themselves no longer experiencing this issue. I also think it's important for people to know that food insecurity happens at many different social economic levels. Even families at 300% of the federal income guidelines are experiencing food insecurity. And that's really due to outside things like the rising cost of housing and other uh, factors that make it difficult for families to make ends meet. And where do families typically slash cost from their budget in order to survive, it's generally going to be the food budget. That's also why we can't make assumptions and have biases about who is impacted by food insecurity, because it's not something that you can tell just from the outside. My work at Food Equality Initiative is, is just rooted in lived experiences and making sure that families like mine and families like yours have the resources they need to manage their condition. And food allergy is a diet-treated illness, meaning it's not an illness that's caused by poor diet, but it's an illness that up until very recently, the only treatment was food avoidance. And that means having the right foods at the right time. I started the pantry to connect families with those resources. The food banking system in our, in our country was really designed to meet an emergency need, you know, to provide a day or two relief of hunger. But if you've got a food allergy, it's not going away in two or three days. It's going to be with you, truly a medical need. And the food banking system in our community at this time just has not responded to this need. And that, that's really because of the way that they're, they're set up. Initially, it was a system that was created to kind of take either surplus or waste product from manufacturers, from brands, and to redistribute that to individuals who cannot afford food. And so while the work is very well-meaning, the challenge here is that we wouldn't send someone to the food bank because they can't afford their insulin. So then why are we expecting a system that's built for emergency to really fill a sustainable problem? You referenced your personal experience with food insecurity. Could you tell us how you came to understand that the food bank infrastructure was not prepared for clients with food allergy? 
my family was diagnosed with food allergy at the end of 2012. Fairly quickly, like so many food allergy moms, I recognized the increase in my grocery bill. And we did all the things that we could to kind of cut our budget and to manage that. Before I knew it, we were expecting another child and it was really difficult for us to make ends meet. And so we did what most Americans do during this time. I enrolled in the WIC program and really, first I always like to acknowledge that I think the WIC program is a great, well-documented program that shows that it is helping reduce healthcare costs and improve the diets of mothers and children who participate in the program. The reality is that they have very few options when it comes to families that have food allergies. While I was very grateful for the support that we received through the program, I really couldn't find very many foods that my daughter could eat. So I went to the local pantry, waited in line for hours, saw carts and carts of food roll by. But when I got into shop, the only safe foods available to our family were two potatoes and a jar of salsa. It was really kind of a defining moment to recognize that the foods that we needed, they weren't in this federal nutrition program that we were enrolled in. And then they weren't here at the food bank and the food pantries either. I remember asking the, the pantry manager if they ever got any non-dairy milk or any gluten-free foods. And I was just told, well, you got something. Just a defining moment and, and just this recognition that there is just a huge gap in our safety net system. And that food allergy, which is growing in prevalence, 32 million Americans impacted. I knew we couldn't be the only ones dealing with this issue. So that's really kind of what led to the work that I do at FEI. We actually started in advocacy and working to amend the WIC food packages and quickly realized that might take the next 20, 30 years and decided to have a direct services approach and start serving individuals and families in Kansas City, you know, right now because we knew that we couldn't wait. We started in what we call a pantry within a pantry model because that was like the low hanging fruit. You have to remember, I started FEI as a person in need to borrow the $500 to file the, the nonprofit filing fee. Literally had nothing when I came to this work, uh, nothing but my integrity. The pantry was kind of what was accessible. Our first pantry within a pantry, we would negotiate for a certain amount of space within those pantries. We would train the volunteers and the staff at those pantries. We'd stock those shelves. And then FEI would maintain the relationship with brands and with our referring partners because our service is prescribed. So all the clients that we serve have a prescription from their doctor. It is seen as part of the treatment plan. That's kind of how we've, we've been operating for most of our history. We, we have recently made a pivot to direct the door service, still providing access to safe and healthy foods to families, but in a direct to door model. Given your background and the impetus for Food Equality Initiative and advocacy, I know you are well-versed in some of the progress that's been made on the advocacy front over the last decade. There are more laws to protect children with food allergies than there were a decade ago. Laws requiring schools to develop food allergy guidelines, laws that permit, in some cases, require schools to stock epinephrine. There's a lot of work that remains to be done. Have these laws translated into better preparedness of institutions? And do you think that they are implemented disproportionately in predominantly white communities? Just because a law has been passed, that does not mean that the change that comes from the law has been equitable. I'm just going to use stock epinephrine laws as an example. One of our 
medical advisory board members published a paper where she did an analysis of the school district in the state of Kansas that were stocking epinephrine post the passing of the Kansas law. And what we saw was that it was predominantly being stocked in white communities, affluent communities, and not being stocked in the urban centers. I think there's more work to be done. We need to have more conversation about the role of race and implicit bias and systemic racism and how that can unconsciously and systemically lead to barriers within these institutions. And I can tell you as an advocate butting up against this issue in my own urban school district that primarily serves black and brown students, one of the things that the nurses would say would be that, well, if we stock it, nobody's going to ever bring in their prescription. And my response to that is if we have the opportunity to save a life, we should always save a life. Whether or not you think that's going to keep someone from bringing in their prescribed medication with the known allergen, it's better for us to have an emergency use epinephrine available to save a life. That's always the best stance to take. But these biases and kind of the, the thoughts that we have about people of color and poor people and their willingness to adhere to these school policies or institutional policies, these issues of race and poverty and all of these things, they're so intertwined and they're complex. None of them are easy. And I think about districts who deem parents and families non-compliant for not bringing in medication. I think about medical offices who say patients are non-compliant, they're not showing up, they're not adhering to this, but then they're not looking at those social barriers that make it difficult for those families and those patients to adhere to those policies. And unless we start to break down those systemic barriers, those social barriers, and we have these conversations, then we're not, we're not going to be equitable. I called out in my letter, we need to prioritize the needs of these patients in research and advocacy and in programming. It's because we have to, it's not just enough to pass a law. You know, there's a difference between equality and equity. And equity means giving somebody the resources they need because what works for you may not work for me. And that's where equity comes in. I wanted to piggyback on what you just said about your letter mentioning quite beautifully the need to prioritize Black needs in research. What isn't happening in research that needs to be happening? Are we talking about medical research, attitudinal research, or consumer behavior? Could you help the folks listening to this better understand and how to address the barriers that you are referencing? So I would say that it's all of those things. It's who gets to participate in clinical trials, which informs the treatments that we have, the type of research that's being done. And I also think it it's about consumer behaviors, all of these things. It is difficult to attract diverse populations to clinical trials and even to consumer-based research for a number of reasons. Because participation in trials takes time, which some of these groups you know, may not have. And I'm going to say that there's a real distrust in the Black community from a history of exploitation. And so those things are very real. But I'm also the type of person that says just because something is hard does not mean that we don't work to take intentional steps for progress. We need to have community research boards and they need to be representative 
of the patient population that bears the burden of the disease, patient registries. They need to be diverse. But before we can diversify these patient registries, we have to make a commitment to Black patients and other minority patients that we're not gonna just exploit their data, that we're going to walk hand in hand with them in the research process. And we're gonna prioritize what they want to see. We're gonna ask them, what do you want? We want you to put your data in here, what do you need? Don't just ask me for my data. Be a partner with me, help improve my life. There's a real fear of people's data being exploited for new treatments that then when those new treatments come out, those same families can't even afford. So how are we going to work to make sure that there's prioritization in research, that there's equitable access to care and treatments, and that there's programming that closes the gap, that makes those things possible. And that we're uplifting black and brown patients to be part of the solution, that we're empowering them. A lot of really good specific ideas. When you think about the intersection between food allergy and racism, or the experience of the African-American food allergy family today, what did I not ask you? that you wanna make sure you share with our listeners? I think I just wanna share that we're here too, that we're living with this too, that we want to be represented, we want to have a voice, and we want to be taken seriously. So much of it is that we want to be heard. There's been a, a sense of not being heard, and I don't expect things to change drastically overnight, but I do think that, particularly in the climate that we're living in today, there is an opportunity for us to move beyond words and statements to action. You've certainly done that. Well, thank you. You, you. you saw a problem. You experienced it firsthand. You extrapolated that thousands of other people have experienced the same problem, and you did something about it. Your ideas are transformational. The entire way that we deliver content and food and services and information, grace and empathy, and kindness and dignity to the families living with food allergy who are the most vulnerable. That entire system needs to be transformed. And you've tied it so beautifully to other systems that are missing the boat on what the day-to-day -day needs of that community are. I wanna thank you, Emily, for taking the time today to so beautifully lay out these critical issues and to raise a lot of questions as well as answering them. And I hope that we can talk again. Well, thank you for having me and for providing a platform to share these ideas and to have these conversations because I think it's critical. So thank you. This has been the Talking Food Allergy Podcast from Allergic Living. My guest today was Emily Brown, founder and CEO of Food Equality Initiative. To learn more or to read her letter, go to foodequalityinitiative.org. Be sure to visit allergicliving.com and the new This Allergic Life microsite. Join me soon for the next in our series when I speak to food allergy advocate Elisa Word about experiencing racial bias in healthcare. I'm your host, Jen Jobrak, National Food Allergy Consultant with Food Allergy Pros. Thanks for listening.